John chapter 1, I'll be starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In our passage for this morning, we see the beginning of John's description of Jesus' ministry. Not only had the Christ come, which we saw last week, but the Christ was now functioning as the Christ. If you didn't already know, if you didn't read the rest of this, if Ginny hadn't just read that, uh, what do you imagine that would mean? That is to say, in light of all of the Old Testament passages promising the coming of the Christ, and describing the nature of his work for mankind, what do you imagine the beginning of his ministry might look like? Take, take a second and just think about that. How, how do you, how do you picture that unfolding? The Jews certainly thought that he'd come to smash the Romans and restore Israel to prominence. The disciples seem mostly confused most of the time. It's as if they didn't really know what to expect. The crowds expected to see miracles, kind of like a circus act. But again, what about you? Forget you know what you know, or maybe you don't know, and that's okay too. What? What do you expect the coming of the Messiah to look like, the beginning of his ministry? Is it teaching and preaching? Is it performing signs and wonders? Is it forming an army, taking care of the poor and the sick, starting a social media campaign to generate a buzz, create momentum? We have come out firing, trying to create a big splash, name for himself right off the bat, or more low-key than Kevin Garnett with the powder and like this kind of deal. You know what I'm talking about with that, right? You don't seem to know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> well, as we'll see today, contrary to many, probably most, maybe, definitely most, expectations, a key piece of the beginning of Jesus' ministry was to call a few people, and not just a few people, but a few humble fishermen. 
to himself. Well, John the Baptist seems to fairly quickly have garnered large crowds and a big following. Jesus took the opposite approach. To help us see all of this, appreciate it, and apply it to our lives, I want to do two things in particular. One is give a brief profile. I think there's an awful lot we can learn about the ministry of Jesus and even what it means for us by giving you a a brief profile from this passage and a little bit beyond that of what we know of each of the disciples called in this passage. And then secondly, to give a, a brief description of what he actually called them to. My hope is that in seeing two words, I hope you keep these in mind, the simplicity of their following, but secondly, the seriousness of it, the faith of these men, we would be encouraged to imitate them in both. Simply following Jesus, but seriously following Jesus. And the big idea of this passage is that a right response to Jesus' call on our lives is to follow him wherever he leads and whatever it costs. Let's pray. God, thank you for this this passage. It thought a lot about this this week, and I, I think it's a, a mixture of simple and curious. I, I think those are the two words I would use, simple and curious. It's a, it's a straightforward story for the most part, but within it are elements that just don't make sense unless Jesus is who the Bible says Jesus is. Curious responses, because how can you not respond curiously to the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God? How do you know how to respond when he's standing there in your midst and the whole earth isn't trembling before him? We, I feel like it's easy to imagine responding to him and the fullness of his glory when he returns in power, and it's fairly easy to know how to respond to a good teacher, but what do you do when those two things are combined and standing before you and all the fullness of the glory of God, but in humble form? Thankful for this description. I'm thankful for what this means for us. I'm, I'm thankful that the Son of God came to dwell among us, to live the life we were meant to live, to be a, a perfect example, to be tempted in every way yet without sin, and then to offer himself freely as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Thank you for this portrait of the beginning of his ministry. Help us to get from it all that you mean us to, to praise him more fully and follow him more closely in light of this and the strength that he provides. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 1.35, the beginning of our passage for this morning, marks the transition from John the Apostle, that is the Gospel writer's focus, from the ministry of John the Baptist, whose job it was to prepare the way for Jesus, to the actual ministry of Jesus. Appropriately, then, the scene opens up with John the Baptist standing with two of his followers, seeing Jesus approach, declaring him again to be the Lamb of God and beckoning all who are within earshot to behold him. And then fading entirely into the background. And even in this passage, we see him humbly releasing two of his disciples to become disciples of Jesus. And that we see another clear display of 
John's example to us, that is his glad acceptance of the humble ministry to which he had been called. He must become lesser, just like us. Jesus must become greater. And so it was. In our passage, then, five men end up following Jesus as his disciples. Let's, let's look at each of them briefly. The first two, as I said, who followed Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold to them, and everyone was with them, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. Presumably they'd heard him say it many times and taught of the coming Christ many times in their presence, and they followed Jesus. Now these events, the, the events of verse, verses 35 to 42, took place two days after John first encountered, John the Baptist's first encounter with the Jerusalem delegation. Remember, they had sent priests and Levites, Pharisees, to come and figure out who John was and what he was doing. The events of our the first part of our passage this morning uh, occur two days after that. And the day after Jesus was first introduced in the narrative portion of John's gospel. So the delegation first came, we saw 19 to 28. Jesus was introduced to them as the Lamb of God in 29 to 34. And then in this scene, the Baptist was with two of his followers when Jesus came back. John repeated his refrain from earlier, making sure his disciples didn't forget the nature and purpose of their ministry. That is, they were not the way. They were not the point. They were to prepare the way, though, and bear witness to the Christ. Again, apparently John had taught them well, since upon seeing Jesus, both men left John and followed him. It's worth noting again that the handoff is curious. Just Take a look at it again as to how this plays out. It it seems as if Jesus didn't intend to stop by and speak with them, but was just passing by. And It seems as if the two disciples of John didn't ask, can we follow you initially? Or, And it seems as if Jesus maybe didn't even notice at first. But rather, as he was passing by, they just sort of fell in behind him, is the picture John paints for us. And it was as if they were a little ways down the road before Jesus even noticed and talked to them. And so we see in verse 38, Jesus then turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? There's no mention of Jesus inviting or them asking. Likewise, there's no immediate mention even of why. It's implied that it's because John declared him to be the Lamb of God. But there's no immediate mention of why they followed him even. It was only once maybe they started walking that Jesus saw and questioned them. So what would they say? His question was, what are you seeking? What would they say to him? How would they respond? What were they seeking, in fact? We'll see in a moment that the reply was in some ways just as curious as their initial following. It doesn't reveal a lot on the surface of their motives. But before we get there, I want to ask you that question. I've been praying most of this week that this question of all the questions would linger throughout the week on us. I hope this question doesn't leave you quickly, is what I'm saying. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? 
Why are you interested in Jesus? What is it from Jesus that you would like or that you are after? Maybe another way to word it is, why are you here right now? Why are you here? Think about that. On one hand, it's probably easy to just have something pop in your head, but really, why are you here this morning? You need to answer that and and, and below the surface. Or why are you involved in a church? What are you after? As I mentioned earlier, there's no shortage of <clears throat> of wrong answers in the Bible. Likewise, there's no shortage of answer, wrong answers in the church today of why people sit in pews Sunday after Sunday or maybe once a month or at Christmas and Easter. And by wrong answers, I mean answers that do not honor God and miss the point of the Christ who has come to dwell among us. I came up with a few. There's a lot more than this, but how about this one? Because your parents made you. Kids, I'm, I'm talking to you. How many of you, if left to your own devices, would rather be home playing whatever the game system of the day is, or watching TV, or sleeping in, or eating French toast? Kids, your parents' faith in Jesus will not save you. It's good you obeyed your parents, and you came. You need to do that. But that will not by itself make you right with God. Here's what I I hear a decent amount, is to get a spiritual or religious fix. Most people don't word it quite like that, of course although some do, but I've met many who certainly act this way. Being around a church and church things, being around Jesus is simply a way to feel a sense of spiritual validation for some people. It's like going to the gym. It's a way to be physically validated, to earn God's favor. How about that one? You're here because you want to earn God's favor. You have this sense that you're not quite right with God, and so you got to do things that God calls good so that you can be considered good by God. That's in my very best days growing up. That's what I was doing. If you would have asked me prior to 1995, why or was I a Christian? I would have said yes. And if they, and if you would have asked me, what does that mean? I would have said, well, you know, you believe in God and, and do basically good stuff. And certainly going to church is good stuff. And so are you here because God accepts good people and going to good, going to church is what good people do? How about this one? To enable you to live your best life now. Some come to Jesus because they think of him as a cosmic vending machine. That was certainly a part of my sense of things as well. If you're sick and want to be well, if you're lonely and want companionship, if you're poor and want money, if you're hungry and want food, if you have a worldly desire and want it met, pray to Jesus and he'll give you the desires of your flesh. Put in the token of church attendance and out comes the Jesus vending machine of whatever you want. Because it's what we always do. How about that one? Is this what you do on Sunday? Habit, routine, family tradition. You get the idea. There might be some goodness in some of these, but by themselves, they're the wrong answers. What are you seeking? What are you after when it comes to Jesus? The right answer, the only right answer, the only answer that leads to peace with God is the Lord and the Savior, to acknowledge him for what he is, to submit to him as king and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, this will become increasingly clear as we work through John's gospel, but for now I urge you to keep the question in front of you and not let up until you know the answer and then turn the answer to Christ in faith. But prayerfully ask God to help you to discern your real motives. 
Ask him to then increasingly conform you to that which Jesus truly offers and deserves and demands. All right, well, back to the question. Before these two unnamed, as of yet, unnamed disciples, these two guys following Jesus, Jesus is trying to help them to see. What are you after? What are you, what are you seeking? 38, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Like I said, that doesn't really provide a ton of clarity as to their motives on the surface. But these men wanted to know where Jesus was going and implied in the question, or implied in their answer, which was a question, whether or not they would be allowed to follow him there. 39, he said to them, come and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed, stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, early evening. The culture was quite a bit different back then, but this is still a pretty remarkable thing. These men followed Jesus. Jesus accepted them, and together they went off. Clearly, there was something in what John had told them, something in what Jesus had said or done in their presence, something that God was working in these men to cause them to follow so blindly and thoroughly. Almost certainly it was some combination of all three. But who were these men? One of the two who heard John speak and follow followed Jesus was Andrew. Andrew was a simple fisherman. This text even tells us from a simple town, Bethsaida. And as we're about to see, he was the brother and recruiter of Simon Peter. He would follow Jesus from this point all the way to martyrdom. This, of course, leaves us to wonder who was the other man, the other disciple of John the Baptist. Curiously, the gospel writer never tells us, not in this passage or anywhere else explicitly. We know, however, that it was almost certainly John, the gospel writer himself. For reasons that I spent some time explaining in the first sermon I gave on John's gospel, John never mentions himself by name in it. He refers to himself in generic terms, like here, one of the two. Later, he'll refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he never calls himself by name. John, too, was a humble fisherman. He would become one of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and James. And as you know, also author this gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. He would follow Jesus from here all the way to exile on an island called Patmos. The third disciple mentioned in our passage was the one who would become perhaps the most well-known of all, Simon Peter. In verse 40, we read, And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Another humble fisherman. He was married, the only one, the only one of Jesus' disciples explicitly said to be that in the Gospels. He's portrayed as highly emotional and impulsive. Prior to Pentecost, I picture him in some ways as the Forrest Gump of the disciples. He wrote first and second Peter and is the source of Mark's gospel. He followed Jesus to his own crucifixion and by some accounts, possibly upside down, believing himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. I think the two most intriguing aspects of 
Simon Peter's introduction in John's Gospel are that within a few hours of being with Jesus, Andrew became so certain of the Christness of Jesus that he was compelled to share this with his brother. I think that's remarkable. And secondly, at their very first encounter, Jesus renamed him. And my hope is that both of these things would be lessons for us. That is, here's my earnest hope for, for all of us, myself chiefly. It is that we may be so amazed by the person and nature and work and words of Jesus that we cannot help but to tell others about him. Grace truly knowing Jesus will always have this effect as the veil continues to be lifted, as the blurriness continues to become clear. That is to say, as we continue to see through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, Jesus as he truly is, it will always have this effect of keeping us from being silent. He is, as we find out in just these few verses, the Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, the Son of God and the King of Israel. May we seek from the Spirit, the Word, proper awe and wonder at these things from God in increasing measure. Your view of Jesus is too small if you're ever silent. Think on that, would you? Your view of Jesus is too small if it does anything other than compel you to speak of him and to him and proclaim him and worship and evangelism. And second, may we acknowledge Jesus' unique power to name us. This is a big deal. It's another sermon for another day. But what Jesus does to Peter matters more than you can imagine. May we acknowledge Jesus' unique power to name us, to declare who we are at the very core of our being. You are not what anyone, including yourself, you are not what anyone but Jesus says you are, and you are only what Jesus says you are. May we all stop seeking to find our identities in and from things that are made rather than their maker. if If you are not a Christian, you have been named enmity. If you are a Christian, you have been named a son and daughter of God. In the simple passage where Jesus turned Simon into Peter, we see a deeper power of God than anyone could have known. That's the first day. <laughs> Pretty good first day. <laughs> my first day I sat in my office and wondered what, what kids there were that I was supposed to be the pastor of. There wasn't a list. It wasn't until the next day, <clears throat> the fourth day, according to John's timeline, that the final two disciples were mentioned. The fourth disciple named in John's gospel was Philip. In verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. There he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, she said, also the city of Andrew and Peter. All four of Jesus' first disciples, named in John here, were from the same city. Unlike the first three, however, John says that Jesus sought out Philip. The first two sought out Jesus. One of those two sought out his brother. But this is the first time that it says Jesus explicitly sought out one of these men. That was Philip. The first three went to Jesus, but Jesus went to Philip. We're not told the reason for this, but the passage makes it clear. We don't know a lot about him from the word of God or history, but he too is said to have followed Jesus from this point until his death for Jesus. Finally, then we come to Nathaniel. 
the fifth disciple mentioned in our passage. And like Andrew, Philip was so convinced that Jesus was the Christ, he couldn't keep it to himself. And so having been with Jesus, Philip found, sorry, I was, I was good for like four days. I, I could hear out of my ear for four solid days. It was awesome. And and then this, <clears throat> common grace of Mike. It's apparently wearing off. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's really remarkable that with so little in the way of explanation, these first followers of Jesus were entirely convinced that he was the Christ that God had promised to send. We have found him of whom Moses and also the prophets wrote. Nathan's response, or Nathaniel's response, however, was different than the rest, at least initially as he heard of Jesus. He hadn't yet been with him, but what Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. It's not city of prominence. It's a lowly, humble city, just like the men that Jesus had called. The city from which he came was a humble city. Nathaniel's response would not have been unusual at all. There were no prophecies about the Christ coming from the city. It was small. No one would have thought anything of it. Again, then the simplicity and purity of Philip's response is something for us to learn from and aspire to grace. Once you have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord, evangelism really is as simple as inviting the non-Christian to come and see. Come and see. Or as Andrew did, bring the disciples or bring people to Jesus. There is certainly a place for answering skeptics' questions or engaging in apologetics, carefully walking through the Bible. We're going to need to do that at times, for sure. In fact, it's the primary way we bring people to Jesus that they might come and see. There's definitely a, a way in which we need to commit ourselves to long-term relationships with non-believers for the sake of the gospel. However, all of these things find their proper context when you and I are so captivated by the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ that our first are necessary. Impulse is a and genuine invitation to them is come and see or come with me to Jesus. Have you ever been to Fogata Chow? No, come and see. You'll understand. Have you ever watched the 2000 Men's Basketball National Championship game? You haven't? Come and see what good basketball looks like. Have you experienced fall in the north, the great north or midwest? No. Come and see. I won't, I won't have to say a word. You'll get it. You'll understand. And a million times, a billion times, look up at the stars at night. If you can count them, you can understand how many times more than any of those things. Have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior? No? Come and see. You'll never be the same. That's evangelism. Philip said, come and see. And in a way that only Jesus could deliver, Nathanael went and saw. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
which is a little odd, right? If someone came up to you and said, hey, hey, Bill, the guy who never lies, you'd be like, how did you know? It's, it's a little weird, but you, you get the idea here. How, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Is that all it took? You will see greater things than this, than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm Jacob's ladder. (laughs) You'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus granted Nathanael eyes to see. That's what happened here. He granted Nathanael eyes to see him by giving him a small glimpse of the all-knowing nature of God that was in him, that was him. And that was enough. The mere sliver, Jesus gave him just a sliver of who he truly was. And it overwhelmed Nathanael to the point that he was immediately convinced that he was the son of God, the king of Israel. What a gift of grace it is when God grants eyes to see. Think of this. As we work through John's gospel, how many people are going to see greater things than just that? All Jesus did was say, I saw you sitting under a fig tree and you're not a big liar. And through that, Nathaniel's eyes were open. Just think of what people going further into the gospel will see and remain hard-hearted and, and not see. What a gift of grace it is that Jesus, when Jesus grants eyes to see. By the grace of God, Nathaniel saw and he saw. <laughs> many would see, but not many would see. Even though Nathaniel was rightly amazed by what Jesus revealed to him in this narrow conversation, Jesus quickly made it clear that this was just the beginning. Nathaniel, you're right to be amazed by what you just heard and what you see before you, by the, by the power I just showed you, but you, you just haven't seen anything yet. You will see much, much greater things than that. Just wait. Follow me. Trust me. Come with me. Believe in me. And just wait. And so he did. Nathaniel followed Jesus from here to a martyr's death years later. As you know, Jesus would call seven more disciples to himself. Here, though, we get our first glimpse of the ministry of the Christ. And the ministry of the Christ was to call men, simple men, humble men, fishermen to himself. And so all that leads me to the last point I want to make. And an important question. What was, the, what was he actually calling these men to? What was the call? When he, when, he, when he brought them to himself, what was the call? We've seen the beginning of the answer already, but I want to make it even more explicit. I want, to, I want to give you this category to see it played out through the rest of the gospel. Coming to see this in the New Testament, I can tell you honestly, not this isn't, I'm not, I'm not being overly dramatic to keep your attention or to get it, but, but I can tell you that coming to see this in the New Testament was one of the most significant life ministry shaping things I've ever come across. For that reason, a number of years ago, close to 20 years ago now, I wrote this. Jesus' main call in the lives of his first followers was follow me. Many people, when they think of Christianity, think of all kinds of things, like belief in God, which certainly, of course, is part of what Christianity is about, and nice Jesus, the flowing hair, and going to church and reading the Bible, and pastors up front preaching sermons like this, and saying prayers, and following certain rules, and doing certain things, not doing other things. However, 
while each of these things may, and in some cases certainly does, have a place in Christianity, all of them can only properly be understood under the banner of following Jesus. Grace, hear this. To be sure, I'm still quoting something I wrote quite a while ago. To be sure, Jesus called his followers to repent. So the question is, what's the essence of Christianity? To be sure, Jesus called his followers to repent, believe, have faith, love, glorify God, and many other things. However, these and all the other callings Jesus issued are contained in the two simple words, follow me. Follow me away from sin. Follow me into holiness. Follow me into believing all that the Father is. Follow me into trusting all that the Father says. Follow me into loving God and the world that he made people that bear his image. Follow me into glorifying the Father. Follow me wherever I lead and whatever it may cost you. Indeed, Jesus' call on the lives of his first followers is follow me. And the key to all of that is his call on the lives of the whole world today is the same. We catch, a, we catch the first glimpse of that in Andrew and John's response to seeing Jesus. They just did it. They just followed him. It becomes even more straightforward in Jesus' words to Nathaniel, where he said, follow me. It will become clearer still as we see what Jesus said to those he would encounter throughout his ministry as recorded in John's gospel. But grace, the heart of what it means to be a Christian was and still is following Jesus. We need to be careful to let the Bible define for us what that means. But the whole of the life God calls us to is stated most simply as follow Jesus. We tend to make it more complicated. But being a Christian is following Jesus in faith. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? Here's why I think this language is really important. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You might quickly and easily answer yes. I, I certainly did before I was a Christian because I wasn't something else. I believed in God and I wasn't a Buddhist. So what's left? I'm a Christian. You might quickly say yes. But if someone asks you and think of this and think of your neighbors who maybe think of themselves as Christians, but you're not so sure. But if someone asks you, are you following Jesus? Is that what you're doing? You might have to think a little bit harder. I mean the same thing, but, but that language is sometimes confusing to us. Are you a Christian can wrongly come across as merely a question of principle. But are you following Jesus seems to cut closer to the heart, calling for both principle and practice. It effectively asks, do you not merely believe certain truths about Jesus, or at least, in my case, not merely not believe certain truths about Jesus, but also, but also, is your entire life conforming to his example? Your thoughts, words, actions, money, hobbies, relationships, and everything else. Are you continually, the question, are you following Jesus, is to ask, are you continually in the process of becoming more like Jesus in every way? That's what it means to follow Jesus, and that's really what it means to be a Christian, to have faith in Jesus such that your whole life is marked by trust in his sufficient sacrifice in your behalf, in his rightful rule over every aspect of your being. Simple but serious. Here's my conclusion. In elementary and middle school, recess was the best, right? Y'all maybe know that if you're homeschooled you probably don't but but if you're in the public school like me recess is the best that's not an opinion <clears throat> <laughs> 
And what would happen inevitably, maybe some of you have experienced this, at least among the guys, we'd play some some type of game, usually football or basketball. Um, and two captains would surface somehow. I don't remember exactly how that came about, but the captains would then pick teams, right? And if you're a captain, how do you how do you pick a team? Well, if you pick first, you pick the person that has the greatest ability in them and it's going to help you win. And if you pick second, well, of course, you pick the second most talented person that you can find among the group of guys that showed up and, and on and on until the last person is picked. And again, the goal is to pick the most competent, skilled people so you could win whatever game you were playing. Well, we see in this passage something entirely different. Again, we'll see this more and more as we work through the gospel. But Jesus chose the men he chose. He's the captain. And he chose the men he chose. They were anything but attractive or talented or wealthy or influential or strong or even particularly religious. They were not men you'd pick, probably, to win a battle or a political election or a popularity contest or even a seat among the religious leaders of whom they belonged. Well, why then did Jesus pick them? He picked them to fulfill his mission, not some other mission, of filling the world with the good news of his kingdom. And he picked them precisely because there was nothing in them that would suggest they would be able to help him do that. (laughs) Right? So if you're a Christian, you can rest in the fact that there's nothing in you that Jesus needs. (laughs) He picked you because there's nothing in you that is precisely what he needs to fulfill some lack that he has. Just like so much of the Bible, God chooses the unwise to educate the learned. He chooses the weak to crush the the strong. He chooses those who blow trumpets to defeat armies. He put the musicians out front. What a weird army strategy that is. But that's the way God works. He doesn't pick the ones that might seem like they could help him accomplish his mission. They were not the people you would pick. They weren't especially competent, and they certainly weren't impressive to look at by anyone. He picked them so that as the gospel spread, and it would, and as his kingdom grew, and it will, everyone would know that it was through the power of God alone. And so the call stands before us today. Will you follow Jesus as King and Savior? Jesus called people to follow him without a lot of expertise explanation or answers. He didn't give them an exhaustive discipleship plan that they could evaluate and pick up and decide whether they were up to it or not. He simply offered people the chance to follow him under his terms in his timing and for his purposes. They were free to accept or reject his offer and to leave at any time. What they were not free to do, however, and what you and I are not free to do is dictate our own terms or follow to our, according to our own schedule or to take our own path. It is for these reasons that many never followed Jesus to begin with in the time of John's gospel and today. And it's the reason that many others thought they were following Jesus, but would eventually leave as the cost became too high. Again, so it is still, Grace. Will you follow Jesus, knowing that it means giving up everything in order that you might gain everything? That's the offer we see so clearly here, and we'll see again and again in John's gospel. That's the offer Jesus makes to you. But I invite you to consider, in closing, as you consider it, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.